0: I too love that song very, very much. It's a beautiful, beautiful song with great sentiment. Well done. Thank you. You know, this morning we're going to be continuing a series of lessons that we've been working through now for some time. Very excited about, enjoyed very much, and, and um, have gotten good feedback from many of you about the impact that it's had helping you to think differently about things. And I've got to tell you honestly that it's been really, really rich. For Bishop and I, and as we've been studying together week by week to put together this series that we've entitled Made for This. Made for This. You were made for this last week and weeks prior. We've been talking about the different things that we can see within the context of this body, the church, the church universal, the church right here at Marysville, as we see that we are, we were never intended to live solitary Christian lives. There's nothing in Scripture at all about the idea of a person coming to Christ and coming to Christ alone. It's always about coming to Christ as part of a community. And that's exactly what we see. We were made for the kind of impactful unity that we find in church. That phrase, impactful unity, you might remember two weeks ago we introduced as we were studying John 17. And how Christ and God share a unity, a bond. And Christ's call, Christ's uh, prayer, Christ's plea for the church is that we would know each other, love each other, be united with one another in the same way that Christ is united with God, and in the same way we would be united together with God. This is a beautiful picture, and it's a picture that really does give us a clear and and better understanding of what it is that church is about. We spend a lot of time talking about what church is. If we're going to be a part of the church and we're going to see all that the church is supposed to be doing, it's good for us to understand what the church even was supposed to be in the first place. And we said very clearly, very simply, but very concisely, the church really has at least two main missions that Jesus himself gave us because we're told that we are to continue that which Christ set out to do. In fact, in that same John 17 passage, he ends that prayer to God by talking about how he will continue this mission. He's going to continue this mission how? Through us, through the church. And what is the mission? Seek and save the lost and to push back the darkness in the world, correcting the evils that we see around us. Being an active force for good in a dark, dark world today. And that's why we're here. Last week we talked a lot about the fact that you and I individually have a critical, unique, and powerful role to play in that that purpose, in that mission. When Jesus left and left his church to continue his mission, he did so knowing that his father had granted gifts for every single one of those members. Those gifts, those opportunities, those blessings were to be used in concert with one another. And together we collectively can do what the church was set out to do. Our phrase last week we talked about a couple of times, her strength unequaled to her task. We talked about involvement and how you and I each have a place, a role, an important job to do in the work of the church. Today we're going to look at the third (coughs) idea in this. And what we're going to be doing is talking today about the idea of devotion. Last week we engaged the hands this week, the goal is to engage the heart. Last week, we engaged the hands. This week, let's look at the engaging of the heart. And we're going to start in kind of an odd spot. You might say, why are we starting there? But I hope you'll understand in just a moment why we're starting there. We're starting today with the word belief, the idea of belief. You know, in our in our common Christian context, we put a lot of emphasis on the idea of belief, and rightly so, rightly so. Belief is a critical aspect. We work and we teach and we study and we preach so that people may come to a belief in Jesus Christ. That is a central tenet of why we exist. But as we've seen in the last couple of sermons and as we've talked about in our recent podcasts, if you've been a a part of any of those podcast discussions, Jesus did not intend for the church to be a spiritual organization. He, He didn't intend for for you to get your social needs met at the country club and for you to get your service needs met in the optimist club and for you to get your your, uh, correcting the wrongs of society needs met in your political party and come to church so that you can have your spiritual needs met. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an all encompassing aspect of what it means to really be a part of the church and as we have reduced the church down to a spiritual clinic, what we've done is we've reduced the power of belief. We've reduced what it means to really believe and we've somehow, sometimes, artificially determined that knowing the right facts is the same as being a Christian. Believing the right things is somehow the main thing and the only thing that there is to our spirituality. And our spirituality, our faith, the very core of our religion cannot be reduced down to simply the things that we give mental assent to. It's much more than just saying, I have a belief. I recognize a fact as true. And to, to God's credit, he's been that way from the very beginning. God's never made any bones about the fact that, that to be called into his family, to be a part of his kingdom, is to have more than just a list of facts that you check off that you believe. In fact, the, the original kingdom of God, the, the kingdom that we call the nation of Israel, the chosen ones of the Old Testament, Their their kingdom was predicated not simply on a series of beliefs. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the most famous passage to the ancient Jews in the entire Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, with your whole being, with your whole strength. He talks about this all-encompassing aspect. It's much more than just you must believe certain facts. There is an aspect of true, deep commitment. Jesus echoes this in Matthew chapter 22, that great passage that we know very, very well. Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, this is the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What's he saying? Yes, there's belief. There are facts that you need to give mental assent to and hold true. But you know what? Those have to be all-encompassing. It's not simply something you know in your mind. It's it's not simply intellectual acceptance of something. But it's a call to arms that really engages every aspect of what it means to be a person. Belief without devotion is not going to result in true dedication and true action in the kingdom of God. We can't be the people of God that we're called to be if we try to divorce belief from devotion. So about this idea of belief. (coughs) a couple of um, excerpts, small excerpts from a book that uh, Greg Boyd wrote called Present Perfect that absolutely just, I think, speaks volumes to how we have, well, maligned the idea of belief sometimes in the modern church. Let me just quote from his book for a second. I've observed that we in the West, especially Christians, tend to attach great importance to what we believe. We treat beliefs as if they have some magical power, as though merely believing something makes it so. For instance, many assume that believing Jesus is Lord of their life magically makes him Lord of their life. This is undoubtedly why so many evangelical churches place such significance on getting people to believe in Jesus. And so much is made on the moment sinners raise their hand, go to an altar, profess their faith in God. This one-time event, it is assumed, will make Jesus Lord of their life forever. Well, the reality is, that one-time event doesn't. There has to be so much more to that. That belief does not necessarily assume it to be true. Frankly, for me to say Jesus is Lord of my life is much different than me living every day in a demonstration that Jesus truly is Lord of my life. And that's the point that Boyd is trying to get to. When we look at this (coughs) imperative, This affirm it doesn't make it true in our lives in practical value is something that we see even in Scripture. And in fact, James chapter 2 and verse 19, a very powerful statement, it's not simply saying and knowing and believing that Jesus is Lord. It says in James chapter 2, you believe that God is one, good for you. Even the demons believe that. You see, it has to be more than just a mental assent, a mental understanding, an intellectual acceptance that Jesus is Lord. That has to come down and mean something to us. Passages like Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 use the same idea. Let's break this down for a second. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord with belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You notice there the difference. We've got a situation here where we're confessing what we believe in our mind to be true. We're saying the words that we believe to be true, but it is engaging our heart. It's coming from our heart. The belief is not something that's floating around in our head. It has permeated down into our heart, and it's become a part of who we are. That, I would suggest, is devotion. That's going to be the core of what we're going to be looking at this morning. This this idea of confessing is important, though. Before we get to devotion, let me just take a second and talk about this idea of confessing Jesus as Lord. That that, that word, (coughs) Lord, uh, curios. It is um, to have dominion over, to have dominion over, and there's the first of three times today that Bishop's going to absolutely just, oh, I can't believe he's trying to pronounce Greek again. Sorry, my apologies up front for that. Uh, but, but this word, kurios, um, is, is to have dominion over. It is to put yourself in subjection under someone. It is to have someone who's ruling over you. And when we say with our lips, when we confess the words Jesus is Lord, we're saying we're inviting Christ to come and live over us and be in charge of us and to be in command of us. That is something that is crossing the bridge between just mental ascent and moving into the depths of our heart and really becoming a devotion, a a, a connection to our heart and soul. Devotion, that connection between head and heart is what makes us servants of God. Again, one line from Boyd. The truth is, merely believing Jesus is Lord no more makes him Lord of my life than believing Kim Jong-un is the leader of North Korea makes me his follower. Uh, Slow down and listen to that. Just saying Jesus is my Lord makes him no more Lord of my life than believing Kim Jong-un is the leader of North Korea makes me his follower. For Kim Jong-un to be my leader... I would need to submit my life to him. I would need to become a citizen of his country. I would need to put him in charge. So too for Jesus to be my Lord. For Jesus to be my Lord, I would need to submit my life to him. I would need to be a citizen of his country. I would need to put myself under his charge. So when you take that and you think about how incredibly practical that is, it means that there's something that goes along with our mental ascent, something that goes along with our belief. Because even the the demons confess, God is one. Even the demons say, Jesus is Lord, but that doesn't make him the Lord of their lives. And my friends, I can say, Jesus is Lord. But that doesn't mean that every day, every way, I'm living as if it's true. The second of the three words that I'm going to butcher today is proskaterio. Which I think now I just turned into Italian instead of Greek. Proskatero is a word that we translate devotion. This word translated devotion means literally to continually stand under or to continually stand alongside. This is a word that says in every way, in every moment, I am continually putting myself under the uh, authority of, under the possession of, under the placement of, in submission to. When we talk about devotion to Jesus, we're talking about key critical, deep-level submission that says, you, Jesus, are responsible for my life. I am putting myself under your leadership. It's not simply acknowledging him as king, but it's living moment by moment Choice by choice, word by word, deed by deed, thought by thought, with an understanding that Jesus Christ sits on the throne of my heart. I've used this illustration many times, but I love this illustration. It's like each of us have this this throne in our heart. And this throne is a one-seater throne. And we say all the time, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is on the throne of my heart. Jesus is sitting there making all the decisions. But you and I go around every single day making all the decisions ourselves. It's almost like we impolitely walk up and tap him on the shoulder and say, Sir, you're in my seat. I'm ready to take over my life now. I'm ready to make these decisions, but we say Jesus is Lord of my life, and it takes much more than just a profession of, a confession of, a statement of Jesus is Lord of my life to be able to truly live a life that is subjected to him moment by moment, day by day. Craig Rochelle addresses this in a book. It's it's now like 20 years old. It's a super old book, but it's really good. We we study the Bible, and I call a 20-year-old book super old. Craig Rochelle writes a book called uh, Christian Atheist, in the beginning of this book, he outlines the purpose of this book and what made him write it, and he just writes it in a very personal way. I'm only going to read just a tiny little segment from it, but it's, it's really good. He starts this way, Hi, my name is Craig, and I'm a Christian atheist. For as long as I can remember, I believed in God, but I haven't always lived like he really exists. Today, my Christian atheism isn't as large a problem for me as it once was, but I still struggle with it. Like a recovering alcoholic, careful to never take sobriety for granted. I have to learn to live life one day at a time. In this, he talks about how he goes through his childhood and he goes through his, his middle school years and his high school years and how he professed Jesus as Lord. He came from a Christian home. He came in a, grew up in a Christian society, in a Christian culture. He, he was surrounded by Christianity, but when it really came down to it, he said Jesus is Lord, but he made the decisions. He made the call. He was a a well-respected person. He was a leader in his youth group. He was somebody that all of his friends looked up to. He was considered to be the the, the great Christian among them. And he confesses, you know what? At the end of the day, I was making all my own decisions. He goes on to his more modern-day reality when he's in his 20s and starting his own ministry for a church. He says this, You might think it odd for a pastor to struggle with living like there is no God. However, in my corner of the world, Christian atheism is a fast-spreading spiritual pandemic which can poison, sicken, and kill eternally. Yet, Christian atheism is extremely difficult to recognize, especially by those who are infected. Skip down in his life a bit more. As if on cue, he says, I was 23 years old. God opened a door for me to work in a historic downtown church, and my dream come true slowly turned into a spiritual nightmare. What started out as a good thing quickly became an obsession. My service was never enough, and my love for ministry burned hotter as my passion for Christ cooled. My mission became a job. Instead of studying God's word out of personal devotion, I studied only to preach. Instead of preaching messages to bring glory to God, I preached to grow my church. I promised hurting people I would pray for them, but I usually didn't follow through. By the age of 25, I was a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Christ. i got to say, those are very convicting words. And as a person who has a responsibility of standing where I stand, those are convicting words. It's given me a lot of cause for reflection this week. The next section, he calls an invitation. He says, does any of this resonate with you? Was there a time in your life that you were closer to God than you are today? If you're like me, spiritual drift doesn't happen on purpose. It's like a tiny leak in a tire. Slowly but surely, your spiritual passion quietly swept away until it has become clear that instead of a fully devoted follower of Christ, you've unintentionally become a full-time mom or a full-time student or a full-time bank clerk and a part-time follower. It's easier to do than you think. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord of my life. It's another thing to live like it. And even people who seemingly on the outside are devoting every aspect of their life to service in God, they still struggle with it. And I think he really hits it on the head. I think he knocks it out of the park when he's describing this idea of Christian atheist. You know, because sadly, it's it's really possible to live your entire life as a believing Christian. It's really possible for you to live your entire life as a believing Christian and be really admired in the church and really respected and have a great place, a great leader, looked at as a good teacher, looked at as a a person that everybody, uh, you know, really holds up as an example. But at the end of the day, be a functional atheist in terms of who's clearly and solidly and uniquely on the throne of your heart. when you reduce everything else down. What really is the difference between an ideological atheist who says there is no God and a Christian atheist who functionally says, I believe in God, but I don't rely on Him. I don't depend on Him. I don't let Him govern my life. I don't let Him really take responsibility. I don't really let Him be the controlling aspect of who I am. What we have, then, is a person who has professed Jesus as Lord, but has lived, I am Lord. So how do we avoid that? Or if we're in it, how do we break out of that? Or if we see the potential for it in the future, how do we avoid that coming up? I'm going to share with you real quick three things that I think might be helpful for us in terms of application. And they play on the fact that we have the goofiest language in the history of the world. I feel so sorry for anybody who's coming from another country and trying to learn English. I have lived here and spoken only English for 50 years and cannot master the language at all. It's ridiculous. So somebody who's learning it on their own and new, I just, I feel for. But here's an example of what it is. The word P-R-E-S-E-N-T, present, or present, or present, present. There's a sentence that you can say, please present the proper present in the present moment. We have one word spelled one way who has three meanings and two pronunciations. But in this case, it actually works well for our object lesson. Present, present, present. First, present. As in the tense, the right now, this moment. We say Jesus is Lord of our life. How do we truly live that in the present moment? We've already established that saying it doesn't make it true. Saying it is important, saying it is critical, saying it is a, de- a definitive aspect of what we're called to do as Christians. But saying it alone doesn't make it true. It's stringing together a lifetime of moment-by-moment, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month confessions. It's not that one day, way back in my childhood, at the Overland Church of Christ, coming out of Wesley Jones' office where I had just studied the Bible with him and, and committed that I was going to be baptized, and he called my mom and dad, and they came and they sat on the front pew. That office, incidentally, right now is occupied by Ed Bylon, who a lot of you know. Pretty cool. And we walked out of his office, and his office had the steps up the back. His office was right here, right here, and the baptistry was right here. We walked up those steps, and I can remember standing in that water, and I can remember him saying, I need to take your confession. And without any hesitation or any question whatsoever in my heart, I said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I made a confession. And if you have had the joy of coming up out of the waters of baptism, you too have been standing there knee deep in water and had somebody say, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you've said, I do. I do. I confess that. And I did confess that. But did that make it true? I'm not going to tell you how many years. A lot of years later. Did it make it true in that moment? It made true my intention, but it did it make true my result? You see, the confession, Jesus is Lord, is a statement, Jesus is my Lord. And I would suggest to you that there's a big difference between what you might have said in a watery grave of baptism somewhere down your past, And what you are saying by your life, by your choices, by your actions, by your deeds, moment by moment by moment. A good analogy to this to me is marriage. When I married Sue, I did not confess her as my wife once and then go right on living like a bachelor. I wouldn't be married. You guys know Sue. She's not here, I can tell you. I wouldn't be alive. You're laughing because you're as scared of her as I am. That's the reality. I didn't make a one-time confession and then go on living my life any other way that I wanted. My life from that point forward was in keeping with the confession that I made. You could argue that I made the confession every day since. I need to continue making that confession. She is every morning my wife and every night my wife. And I confess that day by day, moment by moment in my actions, in my deeds, in my attitudes, in the way I live my life. You know, and that's exactly what Matthew 22 is all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And do it right now. Because too often what we do is we, can, we confuse a one-time confession with a consistent confession. One is a statement of belief. I believe that Jesus is Lord. The other is a statement of devotion. Today, right now, in this moment, Jesus is my Lord. He's on the throne of my heart. He's the one that calls the shots. We struggle with a theoretical version of Christianity in the modern church. One that theoretically believes in all these things, but when it really comes down to making decisions and plotting the course of our life, we do it ourselves. Someone once said that the most dangerous and most difficult journey of the entire world is eight inches, the eight inches between your head and your heart, for something that you believe to become something that you're devoted to, and that becomes something that's very difficult, I think, in our modern world today. It's a very present and dangerous risk that we fall into, that we believe God is king without living like God is our king right now. And so that atheist who doesn't believe in a God is really no worse off than those of us who don't live like there's one. A little uncomfortable thought exercise. There was a college campus a couple years ago that did a study with hundreds of students and over the course of this study, what they went to and they said to students, how has your life been changed because of your walk with Christ? How is your walk different today? How is your life different today than it was? And outside of church attendance, only 4% of the people surveyed could actually give some credible, definitive answer to how God is changing their life. And the question comes back, if he's not changing your life, how can you say he's really Lord of your life? What changes is he making? I don't know about you, but that's uncomfortable for me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says you're going to know them by their fruits. And you know the person who I have the hardest time judging fruit with. And the one I don't want to is the guy who looks at me every morning in the mirror. And I have to ask myself the hard question. If I'm really living my life with Jesus as my Lord, day by day, moment by moment, what's different today than it was last month? By your fruits. You're going to know that guy in the mirror. And I would suggest that devotion is that moment by moment affirmation that Jesus is the king of our life. Right now. Right here. Number two, the gift. The present. We talk a lot about presents right now this time of year. In fact, late last night, my wife was sitting in our bedroom wrapping Presents and uh, making a huge stack of them, which we threw a blanket over, and we're just hoping that somehow the kids don't particularly notice that there's this massive blanket in the corner of our room. What do we do with that? What do we present to God? What do we give to God? Micah, the ancient prophet, wrestled with this. in Micah chapter 6. With what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh, my own blood from my sin? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. What's the present? What's, what's the present that he wants us to give him? He says this, he wants you to carry out justice, to love faithfulness, and to live obediently before your God. You know, from the very beginning of time, we have been in the business of giving gifts to our kings. We have. That's what we've always done. Now it takes the form of taxation and it's not nearly as much fun as it once was, but the the reality was we've always been giving gifts to our kings. We want to respect them. We want to show honor to them. We want them to be pleased with us. What do we give to God? What, what, What do we give to God? What we give to God is our devotion. That is our present. I give him myself. I confess that he's Lord of my life and then I live like it. I confess that he's the one making the making the decisions, and and, and I live like it. I give him myself in the same way that I do in my marriage. I don't spend money without talking to Sue. I don't make plans without talking to Sue. I don't put things on my calendar without talking to Sue. I I don't make up obligations without talking to Sue. But in my everyday life, how much do I do without ever talking to God? I say he's the Lord of my life. I say he's the one that gets to make the decisions, but I don't talk to him about my finances and my plans and my decisions and my course of action and the things I do. If I did that in my marriage, I wouldn't have a marriage, but i do that in my relationship with God. And you know what? So do you all. We all do. That's not devotion. That's not the present that we place before God. Lord has to be Lord of all, or he's Lord not at all. Interesting exercise for you. Sit down at the end of your evening. Think back on your choices. Think back on your decisions. Think back on the things you did that day and ask yourself the question. Well, don't do this if you're not really brave, because I've done this this week, and it's not been pleasant. Jeff, when was the last decision you can think of today that you really let Jesus make? What did you do today, Jeff, that you can look back on and say, before you made a decision, you stopped and you thought, what would Jesus have me do right now? What's the last decision I made that I stopped and I said, you know what, if Jesus is really the Lord of my life, then Jesus needs to be part of my decision. He needs to be my decision-making process, and I'm going to run this past him. I do it all the time with my wife and my family. How often times do I say Jesus is Lord up until the point that there's a decision to be made? In which case, I jump right in that throne. The last one, and I'll go quick. Present. What do we present to the world? Think about the last great movie you watched, the last great book you read, the last great meal you had at some new restaurant. And you couldn't wait to tell everybody about it. You were so excited about it. You were like, I got, I'm going to put this on Twitter, and I'm going to put this out on Facebook. I'm going to call people up. On and here's what I would suggest. It wasn't because of a group of facts. You didn't go to that restaurant and come back and say, you know, uh, here's my recommendation. There's a restaurant at 517 West Stoney Road, and, uh, and it has a 32 page menu with 36 seats in one side. You didn't name all these facts. You said, oh my goodness, this dish was amazing. Why? Because it connected with you fully. You were emotionally involved. You were were dynamically invested in that book or that movie or that food or whatever it was. And because of that, you were excited to share it with people. You wanted to let people know about it. You wanted to know this was great. I experienced something great, and I want you to experience something great. If we're in a constant relationship with Jesus Christ, isn't that the same kind of motivation we should have? In Acts chapter 4, the apostles say, we could not help but tell you the gospel. We couldn't help ourselves. Even if we didn't want to, we couldn't help. It It just bubbles up out of us. We can't help but tell you about how wonderful this is. Paul, when wrote to the the church at Thessalonica, his first letter, he talks about the joy with which he proclaimed the good news. You know, when a belief makes that journey of eight inches from something that we know to be true to something that we are deeply devoted to. We're going to find that we want everybody to know about it. Because it means so much to us, we can't even help ourselves. That's really it. Ours is a Christianity that starts at belief and holds it in high esteem. But we recognize that belief is the means by which we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Belief is the means by which we place Him solely consistently and constantly on the throne of our heart. And my friends, you were made for this. We were made for this. We were made for a fully formed, grown-up, powerful, unified, world-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And it starts by confessing him every day, in every word and every deed, putting him solely on the throne of our heart, Not making decisions over him, but making decisions united with him. And living a life that is governed truly, not in word, but truly, by him being the king of your life and mine. So how are we doing? How are we doing in that department? Is mine a a faith of beliefs? Beliefs? Or is mine a faith of belief that has taken full root in my heart and become a faith of devotion? Is mine a profession that Jesus is Lord, or is mine a daily experience of living life as Jesus as Lord? I don't know where you are. I can tell you, I have a better idea where I am after this week. Wish I was a lot farther along. I don't know where you are. What I do want you to know is that wherever you are on that journey, you're not on that journey alone. Because you were made for this. You were made for the impactful unity that we find here. And my friends, you don't have to take that next step in your journey with Jesus by yourself. We are here together collectively to help and support one another in that. And our leaders stand right here in the back of this room. And nothing is more exciting to us than to be able to talk with and pray with and and help in any way somebody who's ready to take a next step Or that first step. And if you've never taken that first step, there's no day like today, there's no time like right now. You know, the confession that you will make in that water of baptism to say Jesus is Lord will be a beautiful confession you'll make in that moment. But even more importantly, it'll be a beautiful confession that you make moment by moment and day by day from this point forward. And if you've never had that step, taken that step, We'd love to help you do that as well today. Whatever you need and wherever you are, let us be the church for you as we stand and sing.